Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the war on drugs. Yes, this is your war. This is your war on drugs. This is your brain on the war on drugs. And this is our classic episode on the war on drugs. Uh, you could you could write a book about this. Many people have, and some of those books are very good. In this episode, we're exploring not just the mo- modern idea of the war on drugs, but all the precedents that led us to the current situation. And uh, spoiler alert, you know, we don't really solve the problem, I think, but we do build a case for conspiracy. Yeah. And you know what? There's not much else to say. Let's jump right into it. From UFOs to ghosts and government cover-ups, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. Hello and welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. And I'm Ben, not a cop, Bolin. And that over there is Noel Brown. Ladies and gentlemen, our famous super producer, Noel Brown. Could we get some uh, sirens at the top of your Noel? Perfect. Uh-oh. Uh, why, why are there cops here? Well, that's one of the reasons why I said that I am not a cop, but I'm not so sure about you, Matt. Uh, today, we have some sirens and some imaginary police officers here to help us out with a very sticky, controversial subject... Ladies and gentlemen, the war on drugs. Ugh. <laughs> well, let's get right into it. What the heck is it? Mm-hmm. Where did it come from? How did it start? Oh, yeah. Okay. So 
the phrase the war on drugs is actually not that old. It goes back to uh, 1971. Uh, on June 18th, uh, the president of the time, Richard Nixon, held a press conference. Uh, and this was the day after he had given a special message to the Congress on drug abuse prevention and control. So during this press conference, Matt, he says that drug abuse is public enemy number one. And he says that he's going to devote more money to here. Here's the, the first time it was ever said. Yeah. The war on drugs. So this phrase, the war on drugs, really mm. just got taken up by the media and it was used all over the place. Sure. Um, and the way we think about the war on drugs now in at least 2014 when we're putting this out is a little different than maybe the way it was uh, presented at the time. Uh, in the beginning, it was you know, about trying to help people rehabilitate drug users. Uh, It was about preventing new addicts from getting addicted. Um, But that kind of that uh, message, let's say, sure, um, was kind of put in different places. And we'll maybe go over some of those other uh, organizations. Right. Uh, But it was focused on just the the word war. Ah, yes. Focuses you on like battle, guns, mm-hmm. uh, like grenades, all kinds of crazy things. At least those images are are created in your head when you hear that phrase. Right, yeah, and it's also a war on an idea, which is what, what drug use. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess you could argue that it's a war on a specific thing, but I think it's more a war on an activity, which is people mm-hmm. using drugs. And you make a very interesting point about Portraying this as a war sort of criminalizes the people who are addicted. And in other countries, addiction is often treated like a disease, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But we know, as you said, that the war on drugs has evolved from its uh, rehabilitative aims uh, that, that were part of it. I mean, they always wanted to criminalize drugs, but... Part of it was rehabilitation and and helping with community-oriented solutions. But today, guys, the war on drugs in the United States takes an estimated $51 billion with a B dollars of the U.S. budget. That's according to the Drug Policy Alliance. And for everybody who's listening now and saying, you guys, don't be shallow. The war on drugs didn't start in the 70s. It goes way, way back. Well, we know. We looked into it. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the U.S. has always had an adversarial relationship with drugs uh, because, you know, we we think of drugs as a bad thing, an immoral thing to do, at least in the moral code of, let's say, Christianity. It's just as one, Yeah, as one example, sure. um, something you're not supposed to do. So the first drug laws actually surfaced way back in the 1860s uh, yeah, and on those the were, books. Yeah, those were uh, opium-related, I think, um, and those were local as well, right? Mm-hmm. Then the first law that restricted drugs on uh, like a national level was the Harrison Narcotics Act of 1914, and that was related to, again, opium. Uh, it was trying to tax opium as well as cocaine. Yeah, and at this time we see cocaine uh, being illegal unless you are an individual or a company with a license. Now, I have uh, I have no real idea. In full disclosure, uh, Matt, Noel, and I are not uh, drug dealers, nor, to my knowledge, drug addicts. Well, I got caffeine. I got a caffeine monkey. Yeah, I've got several that are currently legal. 
<laughs> okay. All right. Um, but uh, we know that, you know, the idea that an individual could get a license got to be crazy. Like that guy had the best pickup line at the bar, right? It's like, oh, here, let me show you my license. I've got my opium license. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's just fast forward past alcohol prohibition, that huge debacle from 1920 to 1933, because it did not work. It did give us several political dynasties that started out as criminals. Oh, yeah. Tons of those and fun little secret bars that are really popular now. Yeah. Speakeasies that you can go to and find a, a hidden door somewhere. The cottage industry of creative people making moonshine. There I mean, you go. <laughs> prohibition. Uh, this is a scary thing. It'll come up later. In many ways, prohibition was fantastic for parts of the U.S. economy. But at the same time, it had a bloody history. There it's were true. so many people died during mm-hmm. prohibition, uh, not only from being shot by Ooh. authorities or authorities being shot by, uh, you know, moonshiners or whoever is trying to make the stuff. Bootleggers, also, yeah. bootleggers, uh, people getting killed from poisoned alcohol. Mm-hmm. And rock al- gut. Yeah, rock gut. Alcohol that wasn't made correctly. Yep. Uh, the, because without going into all of the specifics of how to create moonshine, um, which some which my family knows about, uh, we can point you to, I believe, Stuff You Should Know has an episode on moonshine. They do. And they do a great job explaining how to make this uh, strange, fantastic, potentially blinding drink. Uh, but... We do know that uh, mar- marijuana was also one of the things that uh, fell under the purview of drug laws, the Marijuana Transfer Tax Act. And this thing has its own bunch of conspiracy theories, right, Matt? It passed in 1937. What, what were some of the theories about why it's illegal? Uh, well, there are a couple theories about hemp mm-hmm. um, and hemp production and how that might take over other textile industries at the time, mm-hmm. uh, cotton specifically. Yeah, uh, I remember that at the time, the the idea is that at the time, William Randolph Hearst, newspaper tycoon, I love the word tycoon, mm-hmm. I don't get to use it very often, but this guy was legit tycoon. Oh yeah, he. Uh, there okay. could have been a William Randolph Hearst tycoon video game. Yeah, I wonder if they're going to come out with a Sim Hearst or something. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyhow, this so this Hearst guy... As the story goes, and listeners, most of you already know this, uh, as the story goes, this guy owned acres and acres and acres and acres of timber. And with the invention of a new device, a decorserator or something, uh, hemp all of a sudden became a primary competitor and was a more efficient plant for uh, the creation of paper, right, and other industrial products, rope, etc., uh, and that the the story goes that Hearst cooperated with some of his other buddies in power to shut down the uh, industry, the burgeoning marijuana or hemp industry. And one of the ways they did that was to put out propaganda pieces about the. You remember the? I think I think one of the ones we ran in our marijuana video was the devil weed. Oh the yeah, Mexican yeah. devil weed. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah, it, it preyed upon these horrible, horrible depictions of like uh, it, the caricatures mm-hmm. of uh, people who were Mexican, and they were drawn as these like 
pseudo-human monsters that were, of course, you know, all after the white women. And if, oh yeah, yeah. And if uh, if a young lady of otherwise good moral standing was foolish enough to uh, smoke reefer in a jazz club, oh man, you <laughs> the the terrible things that would happen to her. It's the end of America, right there, right? Yeah, it is. So we know that this. Um, we know that there are other conspiracy theories that maybe uh, this was something to do with the DuPonts and the invention of nylon, and they wanted to use that instead. Most of these conspiracy theories are uh, related to industrial competition, mm-hmm. but have not been conclusively proven at this point. I think it's important to say that. Yeah, absolutely. There are holes in some of those stories. There are holes... But, you know, on the other side, they they do point to just the powerful trying to remain powerful. I mean, somebody paid for those propaganda pieces, right? They did. Of marijuana madness, <sighs> which is, um, that reminds me of that, that film Reefer Madness. Did oh, you ever yeah. see that? Oh, yeah. I have a copy of it on my computer, actually. <laughs> I think, you know, I'm not going to name names, but one of my extended family members watched this, and I don't think they understood it was a comedy. Yeah? Yeah. I don't know how you couldn't. Get it. Uh, yeah, I guess you're just, if you don't have the right frame. Older person, too. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I felt like that had to be said. <laughs> but, okay, so we have this history of all these different attempts to um, criminalize, prohibit, or completely eradicate drugs and drug trades. Here's the million-dollar question. Has the war on drugs worked? Well, listener, what do you think? Since 1971, the drug war has officially been on. Mm-hmm. It's been waged. We're in the middle of it right now. It's We're still on the going. Front lines. Well, not us, but like the DEA. Yeah, sure, sure. Okay. Hopefully not us. <laughs> Hopefully never us. <laughs> no, but but honestly, I, do you think the just sitting there listening to this? Do you think the availability of drugs has increased or decreased since 1971? Well, the answer is it's increased. A lot. Depending on which drugs we're talking about, right? Sure. There are a couple of drugs that slipped through the cracks. Uh, Quaaludes? Quaaludes went away. Do Quaaludes? But Quaaludes were a prescription drug. Oh, good point. Yeah. I mean, right? There goes my example. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and we'll explore some some different arguments for against prohibition and whether or not it is effective because any, any law that criminalizes a drug... Right. Whether mm-hmm. it be caffeine, Adderall, crack cocaine or quaaludes, uh, that is essentially a prohibitive law. Mm-hmm. It's a you cannot do something versus a you must do something. Sure. Uh, so so if we ask, has the war on drugs worked? And a very interesting thing here, my friend, because what we're really what we're really answering there uh, it depends on who you are as to whether or not it's worked. So if the goal was to stop the availability of drugs, as you said, mm-hmm. then clearly that, that hasn't happened. Yeah. I mean, teenagers in multiple polls find it easier to get marijuana or cocaine than it is to buy alcohol, which is legal, you know? Yeah, you need an ID to get alcohol. Yeah, but or you, you know, at least somebody who will go in there and get it for you. Yeah, whereas you just need to go to the right like fish concert to get Jeez. pot. <laughs> yeah, I or I mean, just college campus or wherever. I mean, it's it's <laughs> it's, it's terrifying. Wherever. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's terrifying how available that any of those drugs are. Right, because it shows that things don't work. But what if 
the goal of U.S. drug policy isn't about eradicating the drug trade. What do you mean? Of course it is. Here's where it gets crazy. After a word from our sponsors. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, My name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, 
personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think, it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. And we are back. Okay, so we left off saying, what if the U.S. drug policy goals weren't necessarily oriented toward eradicating the drug trade? What if they were more toward managing it or using it to do something else? Like, oh, I don't know, increase budgets? For uh, police yeah. departments mm-hmm. and federal agencies across the board. Yeah, that's true. That's a definite thing that has happened. Uh, if you if you think the war on drugs is a failure, right, uh, then you are like three out of four Americans in 2008. How insane is that? Right. In democracies. Now, the U.S. is a republic, but in a democratic system, uh, a number that high is supposed to be a clear message uh, to, to say representatives? Right, yeah. Um, depending upon uh, who they're representing at the time. Uh, we know that the war on drugs created soaring incarceration rates. We've got some scary numbers about it. That's right, Ben. With just 5% of the total uh, world population, the U.S. has 25% of the world's prisoners. So that means that proportionately, we lead the world. Just hugely big time we for people who use the word freedom so often in conversations i know how cynical this sounds we put a lot of people in jail it doesn't matter what your political stance is we put a lot of people in jail and then a lot of people are there for drug offenses and we don't do it for everybody ben as uh most of us know uh disproportionately these laws end up imprisoning minorities like Way more than, let's say, white people. Ah, yes. So just for some perspective here, in 2008, Washington Post found that of the 1.5 million Americans arrested each year for drugs, half a million would be incarcerated, 500,000 a year. And of those 500,000, the majority are going to be minorities, uh, especially African Americans. So this translates to one in five black Americans, uh, an estimation one in five black Americans spending time behind bars due to drug laws. And these kind of statistics, they're overwhelming, first of all, mm-hmm. but they're also leading people uh, such as Michelle Alexander, uh, who's a critic. Mm-hmm. She says that mass incar- incarceration is kind of the new Jim Crow, which uh, if we remember the Jim Crow laws, they were meant to uh, I, I don't know a good way to say it, stifle the African-American uh, set of rights. Right, yeah. Jim Crow laws come in, uh, you know, in the period between slavery and uh, legalized quality, thanks to the civil rights. Uh, Jim Crow laws were another way to repress and manage the United States black population uh, through what was, uh, in many ways, 
systemized enslavement uh, yeah. under a different name. I mean, we're not talking a lot of people. They hear Jim Crow law and they think separate water fountains, right? Separate restrooms, separate entrances. But this is also something like enforced work, right? Like yeah. you are locked up for an arbitrary reason and then made to work for uh, some of the same companies and in early days, some of the same people who thought it was a good idea to have slaves in the first place. Yeah. It's interesting that you use the word management again, Ben, because it's something that we're finding throughout this this series here. Mm-hmm. Uh, just trying to manage manage populations in this weird way without showing the hand of the manager. Because the laws to me are these rigid structures. Um, They're faceless. Yeah. It's their ideas. Mm-hmm. So th- I think that's a really good point. Now, I want to be completely fair and point out that later on in the podcast, we're going to talk about the arguments for this prohibition, right? And clearly, clearly not everyone thinks that there is some overarching conspiracy to re-enslave uh, the black population or minority populations. Uh, so one of the questions there is, um, is this disproportionate incarceration occurring on purpose or is it the culmination of a bunch of short-term decisions such as politicians who want to be tough on crime? That's great for votes, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and also a socioeconomic yeah. situation of ah. vast swaths of a population. That's true. Yeah. So what uh, what is the cause? Is there an orchestrated cause here? And uh, are, are drug laws, excuse me, are drug laws part of this, you know, some drugs have been disproportionately legislated, and I'm sure a lot of people are waiting for us to get to this. Uh, the famous 100 to 1 sentencing disparity for possession of crack cocaine versus powder cocaine. Uh, that's crazy talk. Yeah. And what causes that? Why the heck is that even a thing? Is it some kind of media-based panic, like a racial bias that's happening in the media? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, or even in the law enforcement system? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I, everything that I've heard of crack sounds terrifying to me. It's one of those, it's one of those things where just, I'm not passing judgment on people, Matt, but it's one of those things where I always wonder, like, what is the thought process that makes you say, you know what is a good idea today? Crack cocaine. Yeah. I have some unfortunately personal experiences, uh, dealing with somebody who's addicted to crack cocaine that I'm not going to talk about right here, but I can just say that it it is pretty freaking horrendous. And it's definitely not you. Uh, no. I just want to establish that. Absolutely not me. It's it's not it's not you. It's not Noel. Wait, is it me? Did I black out and do some no, crack? No, no. Uh, so, I mean, we're making light of a, a very serious thing, but the, the truth of the matter is that for a long time, uh, this... This sort of disparity in sentencing resulted in a lot of people who had like the same amount of cocaine in a, in a crack form going to jail for much, much longer if the cocaine possessor even went to jail at all. Yeah. Cause the truth is, right, that, um, they found that there were demographics to drug use and, uh, people in power would probably not smoke crack, Mm-mm. but they might do cocaine. And they got lighter sentencing until, what, 2010? Yeah. 
In 2010, Obama signed the Fair Sentencing Act to try, at least, and reduce this disparity. We'll see if it works out. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to go back to what you said earlier, because you made one of the biggest and best points that I know a lot of people are waiting for out there, which is a financial interest in the drug war. The idea that the war on drugs is a um, a guaranteed boon or piece of the American economy. I mean, what do you think? I absolutely believe that. Um uh, I mean, the economy as a whole seems to churn on a couple of different things, and one of them is the drug trade because of the law enforcement angle and the incarceration efforts. And think about the private prisons now and the amount of money that goes into and comes out of private prisons. I guess also it's a it's a boon to uh, the legislative industry or litig- uh, litigious industry. Yeah, well, uh, the, the drug... <laughs> A drug or drugs in general is a great enemy to mm-hmm. have to wage a war on, at least from that standpoint, because like you said, it's nameless, it's faceless. It doesn't really ever die. Like how how do you extinguish drugs completely? I just can I go on a rant here? For yeah, a please. If we were to wage wars on ideas, I would like to wage wars on things like illiteracy, things like a war on uh a war on water contamination, a war on poverty would be a great thing for a lot of Americans. And you're a good-hearted person. Well, I'd never be elected, but thank you for saying so. And I think I think earlier uh, another U.S. president did declare a war on poverty, but it didn't carry as much attention. Yeah, there's not a lot of money in stopping pro- poverty. There's a lot of money that comes out. Yeah, there's a lot of money uh, invested in arresting marijuana users. In 2009, uh, the U.S. spent an estimated $7 billion uh, arresting people for I, what I imagine is – I imagine that's everything. So that's like possession, distribution, I, growing, I guess, too. Uh, and we know that drugs are also pretty good source of profit while they're illegal, right? Oh, yeah, because inside this black market, the demand is never changed, really, for drugs over time. There is always somebody like a lot of people who want drugs. Mm-hmm. And if you if you control a market that, you know, there aren't a lot of competitors, mm-hmm. you're making money. You're looking at profit margins. I mean, over 100 percent. Oh, yeah, easily. And, you know, there's a question about whether drug cartels would want U.S. drug laws to change. You know, if it became legal, then the people swooping in would be multinational corporations with one hell of a war chest. And, yeah, uh, and taxes. I mean, oh, yeah, countries who want tax tax mm-hmm. money out of you. So, yeah, I, there's a huge incentive to perhaps... That is that is weird. That's an angle I've never thought about, the incentive of the cartels to maintain the drug war. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder if it's true. Now, you know, we have some listeners in our audience who are in law enforcement. And one thing I I think happens that is unfair that we should talk about here is that a lot of the people that, you know, you will meet if you just are on the street level, taking a street level look at crime, Mm -hmm. right? A lot of the people who are responsible for arresting someone, right? They don't make the laws. It's their job. They have to do it. 
You know, it's it's probably criminal for them not to. And I think it's strange that these people, the these people who are on the front lines of the war on mm-hmm. drugs, right? Uh, they're the ones who get so much of the criticism and so much of the flack. And, you know, it's the same with the street level drug dealers, right? They get most of the prison time, but uh, not the guys at the top of the pyramid, you know, on the other side. And you have to wonder sometimes how often the tops of these two competing pyramids talk and, right? how, and if they work in unison. Um, that's, you know, that's the big, yeah, that's the, the big conspiracy. There. That, that's the, that's the big question. Um, so what I wanted to ask you, Matt, is if we could talk a little bit about some of the drug war stuff that we have covered in our past videos, we have a whole bunch, right? Oh yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think just the numbers I remember in our original war on drugs episode where we had the little ticker in the side that shows oh. how much money is being spent by the U.S. government on the war on drugs oh, every second. Yeah, real time while you're watching the video. And it was it wasn't a huge amount. I think it was five hundred dollars a second. I think that's what it was. I mean, it, when you hear that, that sounds like a lot of money for you or I or you, most of the people listening, uh, except for that one other tycoon you remember from the Bahamas. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, Reggie. yeah, Reggie. <laughs> uh, no, but okay, so it doesn't sound like that much money, but then when you, when you look at it and you watch this video, which is only three and a half, I forget how many sure. minutes it yeah. is, but you just see this massive number at the end, you realize, my God, the amount of time it took me to watch this video, a hundred thousand dollars was just spent. Well, here's, let's change directions a little bit then, because this leads us to a, a great question, uh, arguments for and against prohibition. Uh, do you think that the current drug laws work or that they're I guess that the system in place is preferable to other systems? Well, like you said, the system right now arrests pawns and it gets pawns, you know, and, and there's a horrible way to look at it. But pawns in the police department, the guys on the front lines, the, the little man who's actually out there trying to fight the war gets killed. You know, and the low-level drug dealer gets arrested or killed. I don't think that works to solve anything. That just creates a perpetual pawn death thing. So just a a war of attrition, yeah, rather I'm, than war of progress. To me, that's that's what I see. And you're saying, and you're saying pawns completely and I'm not solely saying, in the chess game. Yeah, sense. not in a derogatory sense. Yeah. I'm just, you know, you're sending your low-level guys out to fight a war, literally to fight a war, and you never get to see the bishop make an entrance. Now, now you would say, you know, it's interesting you say that because there are there are people who say that uh, prohibition in the United States does work because a smaller amount of our population uses opium, for instance, mm-hmm. versus those who use something legal such as alcohol. So what, what, what would you say to that? I guess this is what I would do. I would go into the argument about the health consequences of drug X versus drug Y. Oh, okay, I see. So maybe schedule drugs based on that. Well, yeah. I mean, there are a lot of things you could schedule them on. Uh, it's just the way that drugs are currently scheduled, even if we just look, I mean, honestly, let's just look at marijuana okay, versus alcohol. Okay. And this has been done so many times. You've heard this over and over, all you listeners, but the... Known health effects of alcohol versus the known health effects of marijuana are, there's a huge disparity there. 
where, you know, with alcohol, you can, if you consume enough, get alcohol poisoning. If you consume enough and you drive a vehicle or, you know, use other heavy machinery, the way it impairs you, mm-hmm. you are most likely going to hurt yourself or somebody else. Um, alcohol is legal. Alcohol is good to go. On the other side with marijuana, a lot of the studies, and there haven't been enough studies yet, at least that we can cite, but it doesn't seem to have the same effects. You don't seem to be able to overdose on it and die. Are you saying those those posters from the 30s were wrong? I'm saying they were propaganda. What? No. I know. Come on, man. Jazz? Really? That's true. <laughs> uh, so I'm just messing with you. But but yeah, that's you know that's a I that's definitely a valid argument that I see there. Um, I know that when I've spoken to people who are law enforcement officers, the vast majority of them would rather not have to waste time and paperwork busting somebody with, you know, a dime bag of pot or something Mm -hmm. um, because there are people out there stealing cars, attacking the elderly, things like that that should clearly be illegal that's that's where i would draw the line right and well, a lot of people want to draw the line of violent crime oh yeah violent crime absolutely uh but that other thing you mentioned about uh cocaine versus crack, crack. cocaine yeah oh, oh my gosh i mean there have been numerous exposés about washington dc and <laughs> the amount of cocaine that goes around that city right. and you know not for any kind of miscreant just running around on the south side of town or the north side of town you're talking about the players yeah, yeah, the uh, people in the houses of power, whether corporate or governmental. You know, it's funny because one of the things I learned when we were looking at this practice was that the human species at large seems to go like nuts over cocaine. We're like that bird in that Cocoa Puffs, uh, oh, that Cocoa Puffs mascot. Yeah, you yeah. know, it's like cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs or whatever. Yeah, people are cuckoo for cocaine, you know. Uh, the Mayor Rob Ford was in the news a lot for his use of crack cocaine. So I assume that would be regular cocaine as well. Um, there was a weird study that came out a few years back that said, um, I think there are some towns in Italy where so many people use cocaine that you can find trace amounts of it in the water. Uh. And, you know, there are always those statistics people like to whip out where they say like, 40% of euros or dollars have traces of drugs and mm-hmm. fecal matter on them and stuff. So I don't know how how realistic that is. But then again, I don't know how realistic it is to try to ban something that so many people indulge in. The only kinds of prohibition that seem to work for a long time in human history are religious prohibitions like dietary restrictions and it's because somebody's god has commanded them not to yeah so it's voluntary right but i don't know i'm i'm ranting i guess a little bit it's just it's just strange to me we haven't even talked about opium production in afghanistan no uh during the war you know what let's talk about that next uh but first let's pause for a word from our sponsor Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. 
She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. And we're back. So, the opium trade, the opium war, and the Afghanistan war. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about it, Ben. Okay, well, uh, one thing that's interesting about the operations in Afghanistan, which I, I think most of the American public was on the same page, this was, these were operations to catch terrorists, right? They were after terrorists. That was the idea, yes. And they were hoping to stem the flow of terrorism. Uh, at the time, one one unforeseen side effect, at least most of the American public didn't see this coming, uh, was that opium production in Afghanistan increased. There, there are a number of possible factors for this. Uh, people who believe there's a conspiracy afoot will say that um, intelligence agencies or private companies wanted to wrest control of this of the the you know one of the world's prime opium sources and uh profit from it but then other people would say well that's that's a little bit crazy what's happening instead is that farmers in Afghanistan are finding that it is more profitable to grow poppies than it is to grow you know other products right oh yeah it's it's hugely profitable and you have to think the thought of going into the opium fields, uh, the you know, and we're talking, this is one of the largest, if not the largest, opium production areas in the whole, entire world. Right, right. In Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. So the idea of going in there is to stop that money that would be coming from the profit of the sale of that product to fund terrorism. Mm-hmm. And now you've got the soldiers in there, and in theory, they're protecting it and making sure, you know, I guess none gets sold. Or you... you I don't, I mean, I, I, I guess I just don't understand the operational, uh, like what they're doing. There. The goals. Yeah. You know, it's funny because, and this is a bit of a tangent, we can do an entirely different series about wars, but, uh, one thing that was interesting to me is that, um, before the United States became involved in Afghanistan, uh, there were some discoveries that you and I had talked about, about large amounts of what are called rare earth uh, metals or minerals. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of these deposits rival those found in Mongolia, which is a huge source of rare earth materials. Um, and, and rare earth material is sort of a misnomer because it's relatively rare in earth, right, in the natural world. But if you live in an industrialized society, it is all around you in your smartphone, in your microphone. If it has a phone on it, then it probably yeah. has. Or if there's electronics. I mean, sure. if there's a motherboard, just there's some rare earth elements. So I've heard some people say that that was one of the actual aims of U.S. intervention there. But if you check out our great game podcast, you'll see how the Soviet Union and the United States and the UK before it have always fought over this part of the world. Eurasia, Central Asia, um, has always been a, a huge piece of the global hegemonic pie that no one can seem to hold for very long. Right. It's, uh, it's still really strange to me that after all that and thinking about all those factors, mm-hmm. the fact is global, uh, opium production is at an all time high. Yeah, it's Heroin. increased. And we know that 
there was a much earlier war on drugs, and we won't talk too much about it today because we have a video series about this coming out that you guys should check out if you're interested, and that is on the opium wars, mm-hmm. which uh, don't get reported that much in Western textbooks nowadays, um, maybe because it is such a uh, a grossly unethical war. Um, quick and dirty Reader's Digest version here. Essentially, the West wanted to do more trade with China mm-hmm. at the time, right? And the problem was that the West, specifically uh, Britain, the United Kingdom, didn't have anything that China really wanted, right? Except for opium, because they still controlled that in the British Empire, so they started trying to uh, make trade with opium, right? Mm-hmm. And get the population addicted, and China had a problem with that, and a war began because of that. It was it was literally a drug war. Yeah, and you're going to find out a lot more about that in the video series, so stay tuned, and then we will be making an audio podcast about that as well. Yeah, we probably should. Yeah, so I should stop talking about the <laughs> opium war. Uh, so let's instead talk a little bit more about conspiracies surrounding the war on drugs. Other criticisms are that this creates a permanent underclass, that current drug policies in one way or another accelerate inequality. Yeah. So now you have a large part of the population that has to, I mean, there isn't really much of a way out of their, let's say, situation than to be a low-level criminal, a low-level person selling drugs because it's profitable enough in the short term to maybe get you out of that that situation. Um, but then you've also got, I, and I don't know how to, how to put this, but you have a huge amount of job openings for law enforcement, for low-level law enforcement, um, because you need people to fight the battle on the other side. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, the, the entry level. And just another thing. I don't know if you know this or not, but police officers don't get paid very well for the amount of risk they go through every day. Yeah, that is absolutely true. That's a that's a huge problem. I, I would say that teachers and police officers, EMTs and firefighters are some of the most dramatically underpaid people in U.S. society. And while we're talking about government jobs, uh, let's go to one of your favorite conspiracy theories, Matt, and uh, I guess in some cases it's a conspiracy fact. Is it true, Matt, that government agencies have participated in the illegal drug trade? Uh, this is a difficult thing to prove with cold hard evidence, although if you if you know this one guy's name, you might have a clue. Mr. Gary Webb, mm-hmm. uh, he was a journalist who stumbled upon a story that was probably too big uh, for him or for any other singular person to take on. So Gary discovered that, at least allegedly, that the CIA was trafficking drugs. And ah. uh, he tried to get the story out as much as he could. He was largely discredited by a lot of his peers mm-hmm. for trying to go forward with the story. Um, I don't want to spoil it if you don't know what happened to Gary Webb. I guess this would be the place to hear about it. But check, I would, out, check out our video series, right? Yeah, check. We made a video episode about this. Uh, but also, there is a film I believe still in theaters called "Kill the Messenger," 
that mm-hmm. is all about the Gary Webb story. That's true, and I've heard good things about it. I haven't seen it yet, um, just because... You know, we had we had looked into it so much. I didn't want to be that guy in the movie theater going, "What?" Oh, sure. Uh, <laughs> oh, sure. Because those people are annoying, and uh, and we also know there have been other implications of governmental shenanigans uh, involving turning a blind eye to the drug trade. There's been uh, conspiracy theories about every aspect of the drug trade, including the idea that the CIA purposefully marketed crack cocaine to impoverished minorities. Uh, especially there in California, as a way of thinning out the population or attempting to. Yeah, and there are also allegations that it was uh, to be used to kind of break up the Black Power movement. Mm-hmm. Um, the because you know they are they already kind of at least the FBI worked on destroying the Black Power movement by segmenting it up mm-hmm. by turning all the different groups against each other. And then, you know, later on down the road, you get crack and you kind of do the same thing when you have gangs formed. You know, I would like to hear from our listeners to hear if you guys think that there is any proof to that. Um, and we are going to start heading out today. But I have to ask you, Matt, if you were going to change the U.S. drug laws, what would you change and how? Thanks, Ben, for that simple softball question. Sure. <laughs> I'm just lobbing it. <laughs> it's it's so soft, it's like I'm tossing a kitten to you in zero gravity. All right, well, Senator Frederick would uh, <laughs> would put forth legislation that would, honestly, I would probably want to, I mean, the best way to kill a black market is to make it legal. And yeah. I, 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 think, I think that's true currently. Like Portugal, I, huh? Like Portugal. Yeah, uh, it's weird because they've, They've become an often cited example, but do you think that all drugs then would be legal? Like, would you want heroin to be legal? I would, this is, gosh, I sound, I probably sound like an idiot to many of you, but yeah, I would say I would want heroin to be legal and it would be on a shelf and I wouldn't buy it the same way I wouldn't, you know, go in and try and get Xanax or something, or I wouldn't go in and try and, I don't know, get Mm -hmm. some other high level drug that I don't need that's prescription right now. Yeah. Um, I, I would view it that way. And then if somebody really needs heroin because they're going to die if they don't get it, uh, you know, from reactions of not having it. Sure. Then it's there. Um, and then I would also, Senator Frederick, would introduce legislation that would focus on, again, rehabilitation. The idea that this looking at addiction differently, not as a criminal activity, mm-hmm. but as um, a chemical issue with your body i see yeah that's that's pretty fair yeah i i I don't know i've been listening to too much russell brand lately he get (laughs) i mean he he is a has a really good insight into what it means to be addicted to drugs and you know he is a comedian and an actor Mm -hmm. uh but he's lived that life yeah and he's got a great show we're actually pretty big fans oh dude the truths yeah i watch it probably every day yeah so we're actually pretty big fans of yours mr brand uh if you ever want to hang out, uh, let us let us know, please. I don't know if you ever happen to be down this way, down Atlanta way. Uh, you know what I would like to try to do, Matt? Were I uh, Senator Bolin? Well, I guess uh, this wouldn't really work in a democracy. I need to be a dictator. Okay, um, okay. A benevolent dictator. I mean, sure. All dictators are like kind of benevolent during the honeymoon period, right? Sure. Here's what I would do: 
just for like a year or two, I would make everything illegal. Everything. everything. Every single thing. And turn the country into a prison. The whole country. Oh, Everybody's ar- under arrest. What did you do? Don't answer. It was against the law. Oh, God. And then I'd slowly start to make things legal again. And you know? let some people out of this massive prison? Somehow? No, everybody stays in the country. Okay. The flights in or out. We're like Madagascar in pandemic. Okay. And, uh, you know, slowly ease back into some things and then, you know, see which one is the trigger point. Like, there you go. We'll start with walking outside is now legal again and people can walk outside only wow. between three and four. Okay. Because you got to start small. Yeah, you sure. You can't repeal all this stuff at once. Now, of course, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you understand that I am joking and that is a terrible, terrible foreign policy. If there are any world leaders in the audience today, please, 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 please do not make everything illegal just to see what would happen. (laughs) Thank you for putting that idea into their brains now, Ben. I look forward to in 20 years when somebody in power (laughs) listens to this and goes, you know what? Let's do it. Why not? Why don't we just make everything illegal? Um, but then there's a question, what would happen to the economy? For instance, if, if all drugs were legal in the United States, uh, there would be a massive shift in the economy. Um, and that is something to consider. Also, quick plug for Freakonomics. If you guys have checked them out, they have this great, they have this great investigation of how much money a drug dealer actually does or does not make. And uh, they equated it to something around minimum wage before minimum wage got raised. Yeah. It's it's sobering and saddening. Ben, there's this show called Drug Inc. that I watched a special on not long ago, and it focused on Atlanta and the Molly trade or the ecstasy trade uh-huh. in Atlanta. And it focused on some low-level drug dealers. And that was one of the main points was just how how not lucrative it is for somebody <laughs> who's actually in danger of getting arrested and put in jail for years. Right. Yeah. Not to mention no health insurance, no uh, benefits, none of that. I guess you get Cobra if you had to. Ouch. Uh, <laughs> so on that note, listeners, we hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. And we want to hear your thoughts on the drug war. If you'd like to check out our videos or our podcasts, go to stufftheydontwantyoutoknow.com where you can find every little thing we've ever done, I think. Pretty much. You can also go to our YouTube channel if you don't already do that on the reg, because you should. And that's the end of this classic episode. If you have any thoughts or questions about this episode, you can get into contact with us in a number of different ways. One of the best is to give us a call. Our number is one eight three three stdwytk If you don't want to do that, you can send us a good old-fashioned email. We are conspiracy at iheartradio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. 
And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.